Keith here. I want to take a second to thank you for tuning in and to thank those of you who've been kind enough to support this podcast with your donations. If you like what you hear, I want to invite you to join John from Celebration Florida, Hope from West Hollywood, and Shadow from Fairlawn, Ohio in supporting this podcast. It's your support that keeps us going. Every penny you share with us goes right back into making this podcast the best it can be. If you like what you hear, head over to livefromtheloungepodcast.com and click the donate button to share with us. Thanks in advance for your generosity. Hey there. Welcome to The Lounge. I'm your host, Keith Farley, taking arms against the slings and arrows of outrageous allergy season to bring you a collection of stories, songs, and conversations, all intuitively designed to help you groove with the rhythms of the season. Our lounge this May is all about blossoming and giving birth. Matt and Carol Olmos are here to share the conclusion to their Grand Canyon adventure. Double Batch Daddy have a new tune for us. A little later, I'll talk with labor nurse Brittany Slattery about the do's and don'ts of a successful labor and birth. And I'll explore what we can learn from the birthing process and how we can apply those lessons to our own dreams and goals. So, here we are. Smack dab in the middle of the merry little month of May. We've put the late frosts and storms of April behind us, and we're stretching for the sun. As the wise man Barry Manilow once wrote, We dreamers have our ways of facing rainy days, and somehow we survive. We keep the feelings warm protect them from the storm until our time arrives. Then, one day, the sun appears, and we come shining through those lonely years. Let there be no doubt that the sun is shining through today. Sunrise in L.A. came at 5.51 this morning, and it sets at 7.47 tonight. Everything, it seems, is getting brighter and brighter. As I was preparing the podcast this month, I found myself stuck. I knew I wanted to do a show that touched on Mother's Day and the power of women, but what do I know about being a mother? I wanted to do a show about growth, but June is also about growth, and so is July and August after that. Then, I remembered when I used to work in the church that this is the time of year when we transition to what is liturgically known as ordinary time. We're done with the thrilling spectacle of Pentecost when tongues of fire came down from the sky, and the glory of Easter before that, and the austerity of Lent, uh, the Christmas festivities, the observance of Advent, Thanksgiving, All Saints Day, etc. In church... We've been on a roller coaster since everybody came back from vacation back in September. And now, the liturgical train pulls back into the station, and we get ordinary. That's what I was feeling last week. Ordinary. I needed some inspiration. Have you ever thrown the I Ching? 
It's an old Chinese divination tool where you take three coins, throw them out on a table six times, and make a note of how they land. Heads represents fatherly energy. Tails represents the mother. If you get two heads and a tails, that's represented by a solid line. Two tails and a heads is represented by a broken line. You start at the bottom and draw the lines on top of each other until you have six stacked up, forming what's called a hexagram. There are 64 possible combinations of throws, and each hexagram has a meaning that's explained in the Book of Changes. The thing I love most about the I Ching is that if the coins come up all heads or all tails, the idea is that there's so much dad or mom energy in the line that in order to balance itself out, it's going to change over time into its opposite. So you get a second hexagram that shows you where you're headed in the future. The Book of Changes. Get it? It's easier to understand if I demonstrate. Okay, I've got three quarters, and I'm going to shake them up and throw them on the table. Two heads and a tails. That's a solid line at the bottom. Shake and throw. Two tails and a head. Broken line on top of the first one. Again. Two tails. Another broken line. Halfway there. And again. Two tails. Broken line. Interesting. Another throw. Two heads and a tail. Solid line. And finally. Ooh. Three tails on top. Mama line. But this line will change from a mama line to a papa line eventually. So I draw a new little stack of lines, just like this one, but with a solid line on top instead of a broken one. Now listen, I don't want to spend the whole podcast on the I Ching, and I could. So I'm just going to focus on that first hexagram we drew. That's where we are now. The image that this little collection of solid and broken lines represents, and I'm not making this up, this is the actual hexagram that came up last week when I was stuck, is called the sprouting, or difficulty at the beginning. That pretty much sums up where I was. But it also sums up the process of giving birth, doesn't it? It's painful, it's difficult. Bringing new life into the world, whether that's an actual human being or a creative endeavor or a new business or even just adopting a new habit, it's hard work at the start. Ultimately, it's rewarding, but it can be tough to see that when you're in the thick of it. Let's look at the advice the I Ching gives us about the sprouting. The I Ching is overflowing with advice. Okay, here's the gist of what's contained in the sprouting. Get creative. Stop trying to control the process. Don't go forward alone. Seek out experts before you make big decisions. We'll dig more deeply into these ideas as we go along, but I wanted you to know that these are the core ideas that inspired this lounge. We're sprouting in May, 
blossoming. We're mothering ideas and habits that are only just beginning to take life. And it can be hard. So let's not be afraid to ask for help. I'm lucky to have lots of helpers around who keep this podcast coming to you each month. Matt and Carol Olmos, Charles Dayton, John Ballinger, and my partner in all things, and the mother of our children, Anne Kloss Farley. And here's a new tune from our helpers Dutch, Cal, and Bax, who together make up Double Batch Daddy. It's called Fat Bee's Knee. Please let me be 
If you haven't listened to last month's Live from the Lounge, you may want to get caught up on the first half of this saga, which aired last month. In 2002, our resident writers Matt and Carol Olmos took a pleasure trip down the Grand Canyon. A pleasure trip that took an unexpected, and you could say, unpleasurable turn. This month, we hear the conclusion and discover whether or not the Olmoses made it out or if they are still, to this day, stranded at the bottom of the Grand Canyon. It's 10 p.m., and we are in a cabin at the bottom of the Grand Canyon, spreading each other's ass cheeks and applying generous amounts of ointment to them. I can feel the ointment burn as it creeps closer to the sensitive Carol, areas. Carol, 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 hold on. Maybe we should back up a bit. Oh, Yes. Y- yes, I guess, of course. 17 hours ago, just before sunrise, we climbed on our mules and started the trip down to the bottom of the Grand Canyon on the Bright Angel Trail. Over 600,000 travelers have embarked on this tour over the past century, but our tour was special. On our trip, one of the famously sure-footed mules, a mule named Crybaby, tripped and launched his 80-year-old rider, Barbara, straight into the gaping chasm of the Grand Canyon. Everyone escaped without injury, but that was only due to the dumb luck of a well-placed sagebrush and the fact that Barbara probably only weighed about 80 pounds. Now that we know our mules can catapult us over the edge, it's really taken some of the fun out of the trip. Earlier today, when we got to the bottom of the Grand Canyon... We had the first opportunity to be alone and just say, What the fuck? What the fuck? What the fuck? What the fuck? We took a little walk along Bright Angel Creek, a rolling, pristine stream near the Phantom Ranch. A few hours later in the mess hall, we feasted on steak, potatoes, corn on the cob, and beer, along with all the other travelers. But as night began to fall, we were struck by a growing realization. The muscles in our legs, back, groin, and taint were very, 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 very sore. And it's no wonder. In our lifetimes, we had spent exactly zero hours riding a mule. Today, we rode for seven hours. We are achy, we are stiff, and we have our first saddle sores. If you've never had them, saddle sores are spots around your ass, your balls, if you have them, and inner thighs, where some layers of skin have been rubbed off from the friction of the saddle. Our backs are shot. We're unable to reach our arms back to put ointment on our own sores. So we have to stand, naked and stiff, like Frankenstein's monster, while our spouse nudges our ass cheeks open and rubs ointment into our wet, seeping wounds. As we lay in bed shortly after, we're in too much pain to feel humiliated. We had been married for five years in 2002, but truly this was the most bonding moment of our marriage to that point, and possibly to this day. Soon our thoughts drift to another issue, the fact that tomorrow morning we would be riding back up to the south rim of the canyon, and based on the day's events with Barbara and Crybaby, It seemed like there was a decent chance that we would die. We lay there in the dark, discussing our options. I mean, should we try to walk back up? 
guess we could, but would we make it? Maybe there's a group of hikers we could join up with. Our mule train leaves at dawn. We don't have time to find someone stupid enough to let us hike with them. True. Ultimately, we realize that it's highly unlikely that Crybaby will be in our mule train. Most likely, they'll give him another day to rest. Maybe a helicopter will be brought in to retrieve Barbara. Or maybe there will be a new mule for Barbara. Strong, safe, and sure-footed. We go to sleep, trusting that all will be well. When we arrive at the corral the next morning, we make an unpleasant discovery. In their infinite cowboy wisdom... Our guides have decided that Barbara and Crybaby will continue to lead our train. We look at each other, our mouths open. Is it too late to turn back? Can we just refuse to go? Can we say, my God, Barbara, what are you doing? You're 80 years old. Don't you understand what this mule did to you yesterday? Our minds race, trying to figure out how to regain control of these dire circumstances. And as our minds race, our bodies are lifted up onto our mules. Carol gets lifted onto Willow. And Matt gets lifted onto Roscoe. Our decision has been made for us. Here we go, back up the Grand Canyon. As we ride along, the sights and sounds of the bottom of the canyon are calming. The water cascading down Bright Angel Creek. The first rays of sunlight glancing off the canyon walls above us. It's yet another moment of perfect beauty. We quietly resolve to trust our guides and our mules as they lead us back home. But it doesn't take long before there are problems. Having made the trip yesterday... We know that the main thing you need to do to have a successful mule train is to keep it tight. The mules like to walk close behind one another, and if you don't hit your mule's rump on a regular basis, you will fall behind and your mule will run to catch up. It's safe to say that Barbara and Crybaby are not on their game. Both seem to be in some kind of post-traumatic fog, and as a result... Our mule train is not tight. Despite good-natured badgering from the cowboys, Barbara is not hitting her mule. As a result, Crybaby is constantly falling behind the lead cowboy, Chris. That means all of us are lagging. And then Crybaby realizes he's too far away from the mule in front of him and runs to catch up. And then Carol's mule, Willow, runs. And then my mule, Roscoe, runs. And essentially, you've got a whole train of mules trotting uphill along a path that's about four feet wide with a thousand-foot drop-off. Here's the problem with trotting. My thighs are in complete muscle failure. They gave all they had to give yesterday, contracting to hug the side of the mule, and they are done. So when Willow runs, my legs are stuck out in an upside-down V, and I am completely out of control, hanging on by the sheer grace of God and my desperate grasp of the saddle horn. It feels like only a matter of time before I fall off. I'm not proud of this, but I am ready to fucking kill Barbara. For me, Roscoe trotting presents a different sort of problem. Every time he runs, I bounce up and down, relentlessly pounding my balls into two tiny mushu pancakes. It's like Mike Tyson is lying on his back underneath me, using my scrotum as his punching bag. 
My nutsack is screaming in agony, and I too am ready to fucking kill Barbara. Hit your fucking mule, Barbara! Adding to our irritation, a group of French tourists has joined our train. These fucking people are constantly calling out to our guides. Uh, excuse me, but uh, can we stop for a picture, s'il vous plaît? These fucking French shutterbugs want to stop and take photos of every goddamn vista. Let me explain. It's not just that we want to get out of this godforsaken hellhole as soon as possible. It's also the protocol of stopping. When we stop on the trail, all the mules turn to face out across the grand chasm. As if that weren't bracing enough, the mules like to lean over and munch on grasses when we stop. It feels like I'm just going to tumble right over my mule's head and just splat at the bottom of the canyon. The last stretch is the perfect final fuck you from the Grand Canyon to our mule train. It is a series of switchbacks set against a giant 90-degree vertical wall, so tight and steep that even our macho cowboys seem to know that this is going to freak us out. They take time to gently reassure us it will be okay. As the noontime sun shines down on us, we begin our ascent up the wall. We keep our eyes on Crybaby. If he stumbles here, there will be no recovering from this fall. The chain reaction throughout our train will lead to a staggering death toll. After Barbara and Crybaby turn the corner of the first switchback, I can see her clearly. She has her eyes closed, one hand gripping her reins and the other hand clasped over her mouth. She is sobbing violently into her palm. I'd like to say I felt total compassion for her at that moment. The truth is... Only 25% of me felt that. The other 75% just felt like, Pull it together, Barbara! I want to live! And then we turn the final corner and arrive at the rim. The cowboys handed out certificates of achievement. They were the sort of thing you'd get at a grade school assembly. They had cartoon drawings on them of people riding on cartoon mules. They were sort of comical looking. In fact, one startled looking cartoon woman in the drawing was falling off of her mule over the edge. (laughs) As soon as we hold the certificates in our hands, we know that we will frame them. We both have bachelor's and master's degrees. But these are the only certificates of achievement we will ever hang on the walls of our home. We say goodbye to our mules. And then I approach Chris. I tell him jokingly, but not really, Listen, if Willow ever needs anything, and I mean anything, you can call me. And I mean it. Like, if Willow needs money to go to a really nice retirement home, I'm good for it. Because that mule got me out of the Grand Canyon. I place my hand on Roscoe's side and pat him. In my mind, I speak to him. Dear Roscoe, I will forever be grateful to you. I trusted you with my life and you didn't let me down. You are a good boy and a great mule. And I love you. 
We climb in our car and leave the Grand Canyon behind us. We drive to a Super 8 motel in Kingman, Arizona. When we stop, I find that I can barely get out of the car. In fact, every time I sit in any position for more than a minute, my muscles freeze. The motel has a pool and a whirlpool. It's the middle of the day, so of course no one else is there. We sit in the hot tub all afternoon, stretching and groaning like a couple of creeps. The next day, we wake up and we feel a little better. Sore but alive, we continue on our journey through the magical landscape of the American Southwest. It's been just over 20 years since our adventure into the Grand Canyon. We've shared the story many times with friends and family, and they're always amused and delighted by the peril and suffering that we endured. It might just be our best story, and as terrified and miserable as we were at times during the journey, we're happy to have it memorialized here with Keith's help. Every now and then we're asked the question, would we do it again? Never. Not in a million fucking years. It was amazing. But no, I can take the hint that this is not for me. I think I would. What? I mean, what are the chances it would happen again? One in 600,000? Sign me up. Who cares about the clouds when we're together? Just sing a song and bring the sunny wind. Happy trails, trails to you Till we meet again Matt and Carol almost write our radio shows, and as far as I know, they've never been back to the Grand Canyon. You never know the twists and turns that life will take, especially if you've chosen a career in the arts. Hopefully, you have people around who are willing to lend their support and who are even willing to carry you when you feel like you can't take another step. The Actors Fund is an organization that does just that. It provides stability and resiliency to artists throughout their careers. Services provided by your generous donations to the fund include emergency financial assistance, affordable housing, health care and insurance counseling, senior care, secondary career development, and more. For more information about the Actors Fund or to make a tax-deductible donation, go to theactorsfund.org. Brittany Slattery is an old friend of mine who took a major career turn a few years ago. She's a mom herself, And as a registered nurse in labor and delivery, she's around moms all day, every day she's at work. Please remember, though, that Brittany's opinions are her own and do not represent medical advice. Please see your health care provider. As I was thinking about this podcast, which is about new life and birth and the spring, the blossoming, I thought of you immediately because um, of what it is that you do. Can you tell us a little bit about what your current job title is and what your responsibilities are? 
Sure. I'm a registered nurse and I work in uh, labor and delivery. Um, right now I'm doing contract work, travel nursing. So I'm sort of hopping around doing that. But when I was still in California, I also worked as a sexual assault nurse examiner. So I'm kind of women's health full circle. <laughs> I know you as an actor. Mm -hmm. um, and um, I would love to just hear a little bit about what inspired you to make that transition from pursuing uh, acting as a career to pursuing nursing and birthing as a career? Um, well, I've been a professional actor since I was a baby. So I started doing commercials when I was like a year old. So that was kind of all I ever knew. And growing up, it was just sort of a given as like that would what I would continue to do. Did a lot of theater and then would get like a, a co-star role here and there. And so it never like stopped for me, but it became more clear that like I was never not going to have a, that backup job. And I hate waiting tables <laughs> with a passion. I just felt like I had more to offer the world than my occasional art and then just sort of whatever other job I was falling into. So what so, was the spark that that took you to to this to where you are now? Well, for a long time, I thought like if I wasn't an actor, emergency room nurse sounded like it would be really cool. So I decided to go back to nursing school at that point. And while I was in nursing school, I discovered that forensic nursing, sexual assault exams was a thing. I didn't even think about that. I had an assault when I was in my early 20s. So that really spoke to me. And I've always been very passionate about like reproductive rights and just, uh, you know, women's issues in general. So I just sort of, I became very dead focused on um, labor and delivery and um, forensic nursing. I don't know. I got really lucky. I got both of my dream jobs right out of nursing school. What's a common day like uh, in the hospital where you're working? Right now, I'm just labor and delivery. So I can come in and um, uh, admit someone for an induction um, or just come in sort of in the middle of their labor somewhere. And, and what, is, what is an induction? You're basically forcing the body to go into labor. So what next? I mean, so you come in, you check in, you're helping people, maybe helping to induce uh, labor. Um, mm -hmm. And then what do you do once someone's heading into that process through birth? Once someone is 10, their dilation is 10 centimeters, that is no more cervix and baby has the room to come on out. <laughs> Depending on their capabilities, a first time mom um, can push, especially if they have an epidural, up to four hours. And the nurse is there for the whole thing. And then the doctor can, comes in at the end and touches the baby. <laughs> so, so you're basically there, I mean, I intensively from that moment when the, the, when it's time to push, when the baby, mm -hmm. when it's time for that baby to make their way from the womb to the world. Hopefully you've had a lunch break. Hopefully you've had a chance to go pee because you're going to be in the room for the next however long it takes. Are there any 
misconceptions about the birthing process that you've noticed? Um, a lot. <laughs> Where to start? I wish people could see the way your eyebrows went up and your eyes got really big just then. Um, that pretty much says it all. What are the yeah. common misconceptions? Um, I would start with just basic like anatomy and physiology behind it all. Um, you know, I've had to educate moms when I'm putting in a Foley catheter after they've had an epidural that it's going in their urethra, which is a separate hole that the pee comes out of, <laughs> that it's not going to block the baby because it's a totally different place. Um, and I've had dads, I had one dad ask me if the baby was still going to be able to breathe after the mom's water broke. You know, people just don't know. Like, just don't know the really basic things of uh, reproduction and their bodies. <laughs> yeah. it's, it's a little alarming sometimes, especially like so many younger people having babies and they just have not done their due diligence in education. But at the same time as healthcare providers, like we should be educating people long before they get to the labor room. If you're seeing a doctor, uh, I know it feels like they're coming in for three minutes of your prenatal appointment. Uh, and then they say, oh, do you have any questions? And you go, I don't know. Write it down. Like when I was pregnant, I had a like a, a note on my phone. And then when I got to my appointment, I'd pull the note up. So when the doctor said, do you have any questions? I had them. Obviously, I would prefer that the doctors did that kind of education prenatally, but um, they can't take all that time with people in, in the way that healthcare is set up. Um, but there's a lot of other options besides a hospital, too. So, right. you know, there are a lot of birthing centers, uh, midwifery care, where you can birth at home, you know, a lot of different options that um, especially Medicaid might not cover a lot of those things. So it's right. not even something that people think about. So, And if they did, would they be able to afford to pay that out of pocket? Right, right. That alternate care, which is the care that <laughs> uh, birthing people have done for thousands of years. <laughs> right. <laughs> and and right. now we put it in a, in a big, a big building uh, mm -hmm. somewhere near the center of town. And right. that's where you go. And be hooked up to a bunch of monitors and lay in a bed. And it's all very unnatural. From your experience, what, what makes a birth go smoothly? Stay home for as long as you can. <laughs> Try to labor at home. Um, you know, I, I stayed in my bathtub in the warm water. I listened to guided meditations. I lit some candles. I was in the dark and it went very smoothly. Uh, and then my water broke and it got more intense. And that's when I went to the hospital and my baby was born 19 minutes later. Um, but, you know, a lot of people have varying levels of pain tolerance. Um, they feel a little cramp and they like, oh, let's go to the hospital. And they're one centimeter. So then it's managing labor in a medical way, which uh, is just sort of a cascade of interventions um, that don't really need to happen most of the time. So 
If you can stand it, wait till you can't stand it. And what are the things aside from, oh, I feel a contraction, let me run to the hospital, um, that make birthing more difficult? Um, comorbidities. So anyone that's like uh, severely obese, um, diabetes, high blood pressure, any of those things going into a pregnancy is going to make it inherently more dangerous. Do you see any choices that people make that make birthing more difficult? I mean, comorbidity is one thing, you know, I mean, this is something that maybe you can't control or you mm -hmm. haven't controlled. Um, but things, you know, for folks who would normally be able to deliver a healthy baby, are there choices that people make that inhibit that? Well, I think the earlier you come to the hospital, the choices are sort of thrown at you and saying yes to any of them makes sense in the moment. Um, but ultimately it can make everything a little more difficult. Uh, like your water doesn't need to break. Like it can break early on, which puts you at risk for uh, infection. The longer the water is broken and the baby's not born. Um, when you're in the hospital, having those interventions, the doctor wants to break your water, but why are we in a rush? You know, if there's no other contributing factors of why that baby needs to be born sooner. Uh, the research says that rupturing membranes during labor um, artificially only speeds up labor by an hour. But otherwise, it just puts you on a, a, a time clock which it always feels like anyway in the hospital, like let's get progressing, you know, uh, yeah. and it doesn't need to be that way. Is there anything from this experience that crosses over into your life? Is there, uh, are there life lessons that you've been able to take from being present at so many births? That we are just incredibly strong as a, as a species, uh, particularly my sex, <laughs> the female sex. It's more inclusive to say birthing person um, because not everyone that gives birth is a, is a woman, identifies as a woman. Uh, pregnancy, labor and delivery is not for the faint of heart. It should be something someone chooses to do. It's a dedication really to your child to go through it. And it can be um, beautiful and life-changing thing, but it can also be a life-threatening thing. So um, that became very clear to me when I was pregnant, uh, just how much you, you give of yourself um, to become a parent. Do your homework, assemble a good team, trust the process. Good advice for all of us from an expert in giving birth. Please remember, though, that Brittany's opinions are her own and do not represent medical advice. Please see your health care provider. Brittany is also the mother of a precocious four-year-old who has recently taken a serious interest in the drums. Thoughts and prayers, Brittany. Thoughts and prayers. In honor of Mother's Day... I want to share with you the document that started it all. 
Julia Ward Howe wrote the Mother's Day Proclamation in 1870, and while it's been largely forgotten as Mother's Day has become just another opportunity to enjoy an overpriced Sunday brunch, I think it's important to remember what Ms. Howe and her fellow mothers, those who bring life into our world, wish for their children. This piece is read by four of my favorite mothers: Jennifer Hale. Colleen O'Shaughnessy, Julie Millet, and Nikki Breyer. This is the Mother's Day Proclamation. Arise, all women who have hearts, whether your baptism be that of water or of tears. Say firmly, we will not have great questions decided by irrelevant agencies. Our husbands shall not come to us reeking with carnage for caresses and applause. Our children shall not be taken from us to unlearn all that we have been able to teach them of charity, mercy, and patience. We women of one country will be too tender of those of another country to allow our sons to be trained to injure theirs. From the bosom of the devastated earth, a voice goes up with our own. It says, "Disarm, disarm." The sword is not the balance of justice. Blood does not wipe out dishonor, nor violence indicate possession. As men have often forsaken the plow and the anvil at the summons of war, let women now leave all that may be left of home for a great and earnest day of counsel. Let them meet first as women to bewail and commemorate the dead. Let them then solemnly take counsel with each other as to the means whereby the great human family can live in peace, each learning after his own time the sacred impress not of Caesar, but of God. In the name of womanhood and of humanity, I earnestly ask that a general congress of women without limit of nationality. May be appointed and held at some place deemed most convenient and at the earliest period consistent with its objects, to promote the alliance of the different nationalities, the amicable settlement of international questions, the great and general interests of peace.
Sing, we are joyful song of peace. Sing, we are joyful song of peace. For the world we raise our voices. For the home that gives us birth. In our joy we sing first child was born in May. The kid was due late April, so an extra week had gone by. To say that my wife Anne was over being pregnant doesn't really capture the despair and impatience she was feeling. She was not just over it. She was miles beyond it. But one night in early May, I came home from the gym and Anne told me that she suspected she was having contractions, although they weren't very strong and were few and far between. As the evening wore on past midnight, the contractions were still sporadic, but a little more intense, and by 4 a.m. they were coming pretty regularly at 8 to 10 minute intervals. Not frequent enough to warrant a hustle to the hospital, but with L.A. rush hour being what it is, we decided it was safest to make the drive from Midtown to Westwood before dawn, rather than risk having our baby while stuck in traffic on the 10 freeway. When we arrived at the UCLA Medical Center, we found all 10 of the birthing rooms were full up. Turns out it was a popular night to have a kid. Since the birth still wasn't imminent, we snoozed as best we could in a private room in the hospital. Eventually, a birthing suite opened up for us later that morning, and we settled in and did our best to make it as homey as possible. As the hours wore on, Anne's contractions became more intense, but there was still little progress on her dilation. She opted for an epidural, which was promptly administered by a ridiculously handsome anesthesiologist. A pair of Anne's friends dropped by later that afternoon to offer support. We chatted, snacked, laughed, and provided encouragement all through the afternoon. I discovered a screen by the bed that monitored the contractions of the moms in each room on the floor. Every once in a while, I'd see one of them shift from a smooth wave to a sharp, spiky shape, indicating that they had transitioned to the huffing and pushing phase. Soon, a baby would be born. Not for us. We were just riding the waves like we had been for nearly 16 hours. The smooth wave on the screen allowed me to coach Anne through her contractions. Here it comes. Almost at the top. 
Okay, that's the worst of it. Take a breather. Rest. I love you. You're doing great. Here comes another one. Get ready to ride it. And the hours passed. Eventually, Anne received some medicine to help her dilate, since the contractions still weren't progressing. And the sun went down, and we headed into the night. The medicine finally started to work, almost 24 hours after Anne had informed me of the start of her labor, and the doctor showed up to receive our baby. Anne pushed like a champ, and the little kid came out screaming like they were ready to head back in. But we welcomed this noisy little addition to our family with tears of joy and exhaustion. The birth of our second kid started at 6 a.m. with Anne informing me that she suspected her water had broken while she was in the bathroom. Okay, I said, let's make the call to the sitter and get him over here. We got an appointment with the doctor at 11. I'm sure he'll see us a few minutes early. How you feeling? Uh, I'm good, Anne replied. How are the contractions? Small, medium, large, uh, medium, I guess? Okay, let's go have another baby. The sitter arrived and we headed out. On the way to the hospital, I noticed that the contractions were coming pretty quickly and regularly. How's the intensity, I asked. Uh, still medium, she replied. We arrived early for our scheduled appointment and the doctor stepped in a few minutes later. He examined Anne and informed us that she was already five centimeters dilated, which meant that the birth was fairly imminent. Fortunately, we were already at the hospital, and we were whisked into a holding room on the birthing floor, which was full. And this is when the contractions really started to get intense, and I started to get a little worried that we might not make it into a room. And Anne was not so much breathing as whooping long, high tones that made me think of the whistle on a steam train. When I ran ahead to drop our stuff at the room at the other end of the hall, I could hear that whistle blow just as clearly as I could when I was in the room with her. A moment later, she was whisked in, crying out for an epidural to ease the pain. Oh, there's no time for that, sweetie, our nurse intoned. It's time to push. The doctor arrived right behind, just in time to catch the kid and place her on her mama's bosom and head off to the next berth down the hall where our first kid came out screaming with rage, there was not a peep out of this one. Just gentle breathing and an occasional soft cough. Once Anne and I finally caught our breath, we shared a laugh and started making phone calls to friends and family while our little ruby sky slumbered quietly in the corner. You can never really know what birth is going to be like. They may take time, sometimes an excruciatingly long period of time, and they may surprise you with their suddenness. Either way, you wouldn't dream of having a baby without a support system in place. You need a team of good people around you who can take you through the process, folks who help quiet the fear and ease the pain that comes with birth because they've seen it all before and they know what to expect. Doctors and nurses, midwives and doulas will help assure you that everything you're going through is perfectly normal. Having a team of trusted family and friends around is also essential. Having a baby is hard. Don't do it alone. And never forget 
that having the baby is only the beginning. As babies grow, they and their parents need even more support from family, friends, and experts alike. As freelance professionals in the entertainment industry, Anne and I could not have raised two children without the support of our biological families, our chosen families at churches, schools, and theaters, and the countless professionals, the teachers, coaches, and doctors who helped our kids grow into the people they are today. The same is true of your goals and dreams. As they start to be born, it's important to seek out experts who can guide you. And as the plans you dreamed up and sacrificed for begin to take shape, eventually you'll need to seek out support lest you find yourself overwhelmed. Did you want to start a new career, run a marathon, learn to play the guitar, write a novel, lose weight? At some point on the way to achieving your dream, you'll see the blossoms start to pop up. It's a heady time when a plan starts to come together. But there are two ways that plans often stall out at the blossoming phase. One is that you think that the blossoming means your work is done. You run your first half marathon. You finish the first draft of your screenplay. Your fingers start to feel comfortable playing Stairway to Heaven. Your muscles feel strong. The weight is falling off. You get the job of your dreams. The blossoms of May give off a heady scent, and their color can be intoxicating. It's easy to catch spring fever and forget that without careful tending, there will be no flowers next year. This is where seeking out an expert can be a wise move. When we were creating Bat Boy the Musical, my partners and I experienced wonderful early success with a sold-out production at a 41-seat theater here in L.A. As the show reached its closing date, we were presented with a contract that proposed that the theater company would take a percentage of our future royalties in return for being the first theater to produce the show. It was a fairly small number, and it would have been easy for us to sign that contract and move forward. We decided to pause, though, and consult with an expert. We looked to Dana Singer, the author of The Stage Writer's Handbook. Thanks to Ms. Singer, we discovered that we'd be sharing at least 5% of our royalties if our show went on to a big regional theater with a history of developing Broadway shows, and that we could plan to share a whopping 40% of our royalties with any producers who picked up the show in New York. Add to that 10% to an agent and 5% to a lawyer. And we discovered that while it was a good idea to share royalties with the theater, signing a contract this large at such an early stage in the show's development could hurt us in the future. The other challenge of the blossoming is that the flowering can become overwhelming. Maybe you sell your first screenplay off a pitch. Now you get paid to write it. But the word gets out, and soon all of the production companies in town want to take a meeting with you, and you can't sell the same pitch twice, so you stop writing for a bit to create the next one. And if that one sells, now you've got two screenplays to write and three more pitch meetings next week. When the baby comes quick, having a support team that's ready to jump into action is essential. Are you ready to handle explosive growth? 
Do you have a support system, both personal and professional, in place? We've all heard the stories of folks who achieve instant fame, whose lives tear apart at the seams. It's the stuff of tabloid schadenfreude, to be sure, but if we look on these stories with compassion, we often discover that the cause of the meltdown is lack of proper support from family, friends, and professionals. It's the accountant who cooks the books, the romantic partner who betrays a trust, the abusive parent who drives the kid too hard, the agents, managers, and shareholders who push for more and more growth at the expense of longevity. Look at the elite musicians, athletes, actors, and business people who manage to perform at the highest level throughout their lives— And you'll find that they're always surrounded by coaches, trainers, nutritionists, accountants, and assistants. They seek out the best collaborators and colleagues, but also hold close to friends and family who provide stability and support outside the business world. So whether you're in a period of slow and steady growth or an explosive onslaught of success, Remember that as your dreams begin to blossom, you can avoid stalling or becoming overwhelmed by engaging with others. Listen to the experts. Accept the support of friends. Build a team. We want to hear what you're building this May. Reach out to us on Facebook, Twitter, or shoot us an email at livefromthelounge640 at gmail.com. That's our lounge. We hope you found something to hold on to in the last hour or so that'll help you navigate the blossoming in your own life. And if you like what you hear, we hope you'll head over to livefromtheloungepodcast.com. Hit the donate button and help us keep the lounge coming to you season after season. Thanks in advance for your generosity. Here's the who did what. Our lounge is produced by Ann Kloss Farley. Matt and Carol Olmos write our radio shows. Double Batch Daddy is our house band. John Ballinger wrote and performed our theme song and created the arrangement for Blue Green Hills of Earth. Charles Dayton provided the soundscape for The Big Question. And thanks to Brittany Slattery for joining us to talk about giving birth. I'm your host, Keith Farley. We'll be back in a month or so with another collection of stories, songs, and conversations, all intuitively designed to help you to learn, to love, to lounge. To lounge.